Morning, church. Hello, morning. Good to see everybody here. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in a new sermon series this morning. I was away last week, didn't get a chance to wrap up Isaiah. Um, but uh, we were away at a family wedding, which was a lot of fun and eager to be back opening God's word with you this morning. The title of the series is Instruction for Godly Leadership. Now, Paul writes this letter to Pastor Timothy. Timothy is pastor of the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And so um, we've got missionary Paul writing to Pastor Timothy, but there'll be lots of takeaways for us, even if we're not leading a church or acting as a missionary. Um, if you have any sphere of influence, in fact, every sphere of influence you might have, uh, right, you have an opportunity to exercise godly leadership. And so we're looking for instructions from the Lord through Paul on how we can exercise that influence. Neighbors, right? How can we be a blessing to our neighbors? Friends and family, coaches, teachers, right? Uh, coworkers, employers, employees. Where can you exercise uh, influence uh, and bless other people? Um, I spoke, um, I found a new sphere of influence just recently, in fact, as I tried to exercise godly leadership at a Wheaton Park District board meeting. Good, you're tracking with me. It's kind of an odd place to try and exercise godly leadership. That's the picture of the back of my head as I stood at the lectern. A friend took this picture of me, sent it to me to cheer me on. But the Wheaton Park District commissioners meet monthly. They're volunteers, something I learned in the process. And like most public board meetings, there's a time in which citizens from the community can express their thoughts, their feelings on topics that, the, that this public governance board might be wrestling with. I spoke at this meeting not as a pastor per se, although I'm always mindful of my responsibilities as a shepherd. However, I spoke primarily as a citizen and a Christian citizen at that, and I was stunned at how nervous I was. I don't really get nervous getting up here. I, I actually look forward to getting up here. I don't dread it. I miss it when I'm not up here getting to talk. And, um, but I, I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest as I sat on the very back row uh, waiting for my name to be called. And so wrestling with that, thinking, what in the world is going on? I mean, I thought I was having a gripper, you know? So <laughs> the best I can tell is I, I might have been nervous because not everybody in the room shared my worldview. And I was keenly aware of what I had to share uh, might rub some folks the wrong way. And by worldview, um, I mean my outlook on what is right and what is wrong. By worldview, I mean my understanding of what is the general purpose of life. By worldview, I mean my perspective specifically on what it means to provide good governance at a public level. And so as I spoke, I was deeply concerned that I represent Christ well meaning that I not only share my position on the topic, what I believed, but that I also demonstrate a Christ-like posture. That people, when they 
hear me, see me, that they get a whiff of Jesus. That there be some love, some kindness, some gentleness. Do you know that it's entirely possible to have the right position on a topic, a biblical position, and have the wrong posture? I see some of you nodding. I've done that before, right? It's probably a vocational hazard, having the right position with the wrong posture, beating people up with God's word. And of course, it's, it's true, the opposite as well is possible. We can also have the right posture on an issue. We can be loving and kind and gentle as Christ is and miss the biblical position altogether. However, right, and the series is uh, Instruction for Godly Leadership. Godly leadership will always conform to the gospel, but not just in position, in posture too, both. And so when our kids experience us and our teachers experiences and the Wheaton Park District commissioners experience us, Inasmuch as we're representing our worldview and we're doing that all the time, they should get a whiff of Christ in both position and posture. This was part, a part of Paul's focus as he opens this letter to Pastor Timothy. He wants to coach him in this respect. I'm going to read uh, 1 Timothy 1 through 11, just the opening verses. They'll be on the screen as well. I'd encourage you to have your copy of God's Word open. I'm going to encourage you to circle or underline a couple words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior. Paul's noting, I've been commanded. So I'm writing based on the command of God in my life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the opening. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, he was on the road, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So Paul's telling Timothy that he needs to be commanding some things. Don't teach false doctrine. Stop getting involved with these myths and endless genealogies. I'll talk about that in a minute. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, God's kingdom, God's purposes, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. And if you're an underliner, man, I circle, underline, mark that. The goal... The goal of Timothy staying behind in Ephesus and telling these false teachers to quit it and telling the church to stop getting wrapped up in myths and endless genealogies, the the outcome desired is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Ever meet somebody that has a confident affirmation? They got the confidence. 
they really don't know what they're talking about. The false teachers in Ephesus had this issue. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, perjurers. Hopefully you can find yourself in that list. And we not make the mistake that this list is about somebody else. <laughs> and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. The church in Ephesus was a well-established church. The Apostle Paul, having spent nearly three years there himself, Christians in Ephesus, though, faced significant challenges. It was not easy to be a Christ follower in Ephesus. Materialism was a major issue. Uh, John Graham, the one who shared communion this morning, he's not the only one who bows to the idol of materialism, money, right? I would say it's maybe the first or second idol in the county in which we live. It was prominent in Ephesus as well. Because Ephesus was on the, it was a port city on the Aegean Sea, mapped there on the screen. It served as this crossroads, east meets west, on this major trade route, and a lot of money was coming into the city. In fact, there's a riot in Acts chapter 19 that, that uh, is really just about money and uh, the, the trade of idols being undermined by the preaching of the gospel. You read it later today. We'll talk about it in the weeks to come. So materialism is a problem. Uh, certainly we can relate to that, the love of money. It was also a cultural crossroads, not just a commercial crossroads, a cultural crossroads. Lots of ideas are coming in and out of Ephesus. A lot of religious beliefs, a lot of religious influence in the city. And the, one of the larger religious influences in, in the city was that of divination, occult practices. On the screen is a... Is a like a, a necklace that you could buy, have bought in the, the market there in Ephesus to ward off evil spirits. And then there are some scripts up there. These uh, archeologists dug up in and around Ephesus and they're, uh, they're occult incantations. Many in Ephesus were involved in trying to speak to the dead, contact, conjure up, empower themselves through occult practices, cast spells on others. In fact, in the ancient world, uh, the prominence of the Ephesian culture was so well known that incantations, when they were sold, were often referred to as Ephesian letters. These spells that you'd buy in the marketplace in the broader Mediterranean world would have been thought of often, or they would bring a premium price if they were from Ephesus. Even greater, though, than the the trial of materialism and occult practices would have been um, the temple of Artemis as a cultural influence. She's the Greek goddess of fertility. On the left is an artist's rendering of her temple. On the right are the ruins that you could visit today. This temple stood as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, 420 feet long, 240 feet wide, 60 feet tall, picture in your mind's eye, soldier field, right? 
The statue of Artemis stood at the center of the temple, and because of her unique role in the pantheon of gods, that of fertility, prostitution was a main part of the activities at this temple, male and female prostitution. This was not an easy place to follow Jesus, to live a life of purity, to live a life of sacrifice, to be devoted, right, to generosity in our material wealth, uh, to depend upon prayer rather than try and conjure supernatural power through incantations and spells. This was not an easy place to be a Christian. And so one of the first things Paul does is reminds Timothy of his job description. Verse 3, stay there so that you may command certain people, those false teachers, not to teach false doctrine any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Throughout this letter, Paul's concerned about false doctrine undermining the gospel, gospel clarity. He wants there to be sound doctrine or true doctrine. This is the message that is certainly applicable for, today, for us today. We want, to, we want gospel clarity. We want to understand and maintain and embrace and preserve what God has done for us in Christ. So the two main problems, false doctrine, and then this myth and the mythology, the geneal- genealogical work that's being done, both are undermining the gospel, potentially. And he's to tell them, stop it. In the ancient world, poets loved to spin romantic tales about the beginning of these ancient cities, as well as the beginning of prominent families in these ancient cities, the governing families. These ancient myths would most often tell of how gods, whether Greek gods or Greco, you know, wherever they were in the pantheon of gods, how they had condescended and started these families and established these cities. Rome, I don't know if you know this, Rome itself, its story of origin, the myth of origin around the ancient city of Rome was that the god of war, the god Mars, condescended, bedded a woman who gave birth to twins, Romulus and Remus, and the city of Rome was built, the empire of Rome was built. So you get a feel for this mythology. People of the ancient world also had a passion for genealogies. Everyone who was anyone wanted their ancestry to be traced to someone of power and importance. And if it's uh, if someone in the, the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon, all the better. Of course, even the biblical authors saw value in tracing their family trees. In fact, two of the four biographies of Jesus have his ancestry, his genealogy, figuring prominently. However, unlike the typical genealogies of the ancient world, Jesus' genealogy wasn't massaged. It, It wasn't manufactured. Now, you rightly ask, well, how do we know that? Well, we know that because of some of the names included and some of the stories included in the genealogies. Typically, women were left out of ancient genealogies. Only the men were featured prominently, and particularly women of, that had bad re- reputations or that were foreigners outside the community. Yet Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, the Moabite, both are in Jesus' family tree. How tempting it might have been to massage that, right? 
in order to strengthen the story around Jesus's family. How easy it might be even today to massage our own positions in the community, to give ourselves more standing. My children kind of laugh at the story around uh, the O'Bradys immigrating from Ireland. It's not a glamorous story, uh, but I have it from my grandfather who's now passed away, that the O'Bradys immigrated because they were on the run. Uh, They were horse thieves, I was told. Right? How tempting it would be to massage that type of story into something grander and more glorious. How often do we search our family trees for um, those people of prominence that can give us more standing, helping us to feel better about ourselves? Alexander the Great, who lived just 300 years before Jesus, tutored by Aristotle, he traced his lineage back on one side to Achilles and Andromache, and on the other side to Perses and Hercules. This is a well-educated man, right? Trying to establish and strengthen his place in the world with a mythologized genealogy. Here's why I think this concern is important to Paul. Why he says, hey, Timothy, you stay behind. You do the work in Ephesus. Don't forget to command certain people to stop teaching false doctrines and not get wrapped up in this myth in genealogical work, which only leads to strife and contention. Certainly, a part of the reason he would warn against this type of effort is that it's unproductive for Christians to pretend we're something that we're not, to manufacture fictitious stories around our place to buttress our ego. In fact, it, it mitigates against the gospel in our lives, right? God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, not to those that are manufacturing or trying to stroke their own ego with better stories of their lineage or their place in the community. That type of one-upsmanship would be very difficult, wouldn't it? In the fellowship of believers, we need to be honest with who we are and our need for Christ's care of us. Even more to the point, and here I think is the actual point, can you imagine how tempting it might have been in that type of cultural climate for Christians to begin to mythologize not just their own family tree, but Jesus's? And if you toy with, with the facts of history regarding the Savior, then you risk losing his identity. You risk the gospel. Imagine the pressure to spin a yarn more impressive than Jesus born in Bethlehem, on the, which was on the outskirts, right, of all of the civilized world. Imagine the pressure to spin a yarn better than he was born to peasant parents, Mary and Joe, and that he was trained as a carpenter in an occupied country, and that he lost his life crucified between two criminals. Imagine the temptation to massage that story. Well, he was actually born in Jerusalem, uh, and he was born to prominent parents. I mean, you could see how this would go. 
even in the 20th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, there has been significant, significant debate about the historical facts around Jesus' life. And Paul's saying here, we don't need mythologies, we don't, we don't need to manufacture genealogies, we want the historicity of the text to stand. So when Paul says sound doctrine in verse 10 conforms to the gospel, what he means is that sound doctrine is in line with the historic facts of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we need to cling to those facts. Sound doctrine doesn't add to or subtract from what was received and passed on, which is the meal that we shared, the little symbolic meal of bread and juice what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. I say uh, all the time that from the platform, we don't want to overstate the truth and we don't want to understate the truth. We want to say the truth. It doesn't serve the church well to overstate the truth and it doesn't serve the church well to understate it. Let's just tell the truth as it's found in Scripture. In fact, it's for this reason many believe that Paul even notes some of the earliest creedal statements regarding Christ later in 1 Timothy. We'll, we'll look at it later in the series, but if you've got your copy of the scripture open, you could flip to it, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There, there's either a, a creedal statement or a short portion of a hymn from the earliest believers. It's on the screen. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs, right? Instructions for godly leadership. That's why we're in 1 Timothy. We're trying to hear what Paul has to say to us about how we can exercise influence in our homes and in our communities and at work and at school. The mystery for which godliness springs is this. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. And so he gives us this little taste of the creed, of the reality, the, the historicity of Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. The facts of history matter. Paul knows that fabricating history through speculative stories threatens the objective truth upon which our faith is built. Paul knows that if the church gets caught up in spinning yarns to empower themselves culturally, and folks, don't fool yourself, the 21st century church is still tempted to empower itself culturally. We're still tempted to, to spin a yarn about what Scripture says clearly in order to empower ourselves culturally. But Paul knows if that happens we run the risk of, of losing who Christ really is in history as a historic figure and what he's done for us, which means we put at risk the gospel, which means we put at risk the saving work of God. The problem wasn't simply that false teachers were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching false doctrine from the law. They were gleaning parts of the law and they were teaching false elements around the law. He says as much in verses 7 and 8. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know the law is good if we use it properly. 
And there's lots of speculation about how these teachers were misusing the law. We'll touch on those in the weeks to come, but for now let's focus our, on identifying what's the proper use of the law. They were mishandling it. How do we handle it well? And he gives a laundry list there that gives us an indication of the proper use of the law. He says the law is written for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their mothers and fathers, for murderers, for adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars, perjurers. In other words, he's saying the law is given to recognize and restrain evil. And the Ten Commandments has served as a backbone of the Western legal code for millennia. The law is given, part of its proper use is to know right from wrong, to say this behavior is right, that behavior is wrong, and so that we can order society in a manner that allows for human flourishing. So that those that kill their father and mothers or, or lie, perjurers, they can be constrained. That behavior can be condemned. Another purpose of the law, restrain evil. Another purpose of the law is to reveal our sinfulness. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law is a tutor. It brings us to Christ. It educates us. It helps us see our need for Jesus. So the law is given to restrain evil. It's also given to reveal to us our need for saving, the saving work of God in the world. The law without the gospel, just preaching the law, just condemnation is the diagnosis of a problem without offering a remedy. In the gospel, offering the gospel, the grace of God towards us without noting the law and how we fall short because of our sin is to offer a remedy for a problem people don't see they have. Offering the gospel to someone before they understand their sinfulness is like offering a transplant, a heart transplant, to someone who doesn't know their heart's diseased. They're going to take a hard pass. No thanks. But when we, when we speak the truth of God's word, when we talk about sin, this is why it's important to have sin language in our home, not just mistakes. Christ didn't die for mistakes. A mistake is when you spill your milk. Christ didn't die for mistakes. Sin is when you pick up your milk glass and throw it at your sibling. Right? Christ died for sin. We need sin language in our homes. And then we minister the grace of God. We say Christ's blood covers these sins. Now, if you're a, Christian, uh, a non-Christian here this morning, and praise God that you're here, if you're here checking out the claims of Christ, we're glad you're here. We welcome the stumper questions that you might have brought in with you this morning. And you might be thinking to yourself, all this talk about the law and sound doctrine is simply a cultural constraint that the church is offering, wanting to, to limit behaviors or restrict behaviors. You may be thinking to yourself, don't drink the Kool-Aid. But I'd like to ask you to consider that all belief is constraining. It's not just the beliefs of Scripture that are constraining. All beliefs are constraining. The belief that what goes up must come down is constraining because when I go to the top of a ladder, I'm keenly aware of it. I want to get down in a safe fashion. All belief is constraining. A better question 
to ask is not simply how does God's word constrain me, but does it bring life? Because not all beliefs bring life. Jesus said that I've come that you may have life and life to the full. Better question to ask is are you finding life in your worldview, in what you're believing? Well-known story of the prodigal son, it's recorded in Luke chapter 15. It's the younger son throwing off the constraints perceived of his father. He says, I'll take mine now. I want my inheritance. And he bolts. He's throwing off the constraints of his father's leadership. And he goes to a far land and he squanders the wealth. And he comes to his senses. He realizes, well, they were constraining at home, but that was (laughs) life-giving. And he realizes he's headed towards death. And he determines, I'll go home. Is your worldview bringing life or is it bringing death? And his father's waiting for him. It's, the story is the picture of our heavenly father waiting for us, inviting us home to him, to trust in him. Are your beliefs bringing life? If you're a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you to be careful with having only right position and not also having the right posture. I said earlier that godly leadership conforms to the gospel in both position and posture. If you're a Christian this morning and feeling smug because you have your ducks doctrinally in a row, be careful. Perhaps you feel really good because the way you perceive the world falls in line, as best you can tell, with God's word. You've got the right positions, doctrinally. We should be very careful because doctrine alone does not save. Relationship saves. We're saved when we're in relationship with Christ, when we're depending on him, when he knows us and we know him. In Matthew chapter 7, It's the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that's the judgment day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's pretty impressive. And in your name, drive out demons? It's pretty impressive. And in your name, perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. It's relationship that saves us, not just our beliefs. Like the older brother from the story of the prodigal or the Pharisee, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, if we're not careful with our doctrine, we'll miss out on knowing the one that our doctrine teaches us about, Jesus. How do we know if we know him? Sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel impacts our behavior. Are we loving as Jesus was loving towards us? Not just are we prophesying, and that's to to proclaim what's true, and casting out demons and performing miracles, 
but are we loving? When people run into us, do they get a whiff of Jesus, the one who laid his life down for them? Paul notes in the opening of this uh, letter to Pastor Timothy, yeah, stay there and command them, command them to teach right doctrine, and not to get wrapped up in myths and endless genealogies, and to use the law properly, the goal of your staying behind, the goal of this command is love, is the outcome of your doctrinal soundness, love. It's verse five. The goal of this command is love. The desired outcome for us is that we'd experience personally the love of Jesus for us, that when the law is read publicly, our sins would come up before us and we'd be overwhelmed. And we, like Paul, would say, who'll deliver us from the body of this death? And then the gospel's ministered. Thanks be to God for Christ, our Savior. And we experience the love that casts out fear, that is certain Right? Our condemnation is certain apart from the work of the Savior. Paul's concern is that the church cling to sound doctrine. The historic, the historic, the orthodox teachings about who Christ is and what he's done. His concern for us this morning, God's is concern, is that we not waffle, that we know what's true, and that we not, we not fudge on that at all because of cultural pressures and that we be loving. Someone came up after first service and said, that's quite the needle to thread, position and posture. It's much easier just to maintain the right position and well, or just maintain the right posture and well, at least I've got the right posture, even if I'm fudging on doctrine. Folks, the, the work of position and posture is a hard work. It's not an easy work. In fact, someone came up to me after first service and said, yeah, but you didn't say. You're right, and I'll never get it all right. It'll never all be right. Position and posture is an ongoing work for me, us. Paul's wanting doctrinal gospel clarity in a demonstration of love. The issue being discussed at the Wheaton Park District board meeting was about the possible, and I'm still not clear about where the park district stands. <laughs> I've asked for uh, email, I've emailed them saying, hey, give me some more clarity. I had to leave the meeting early. And I haven't heard back from them, but it was about the possible sexual integration of public locker rooms there was a concern that the Wheaton Park District might allow people to use a locker room based upon their gender identity rather than continuing to require patrons to use the locker room that corresponds with their gender at birth. So letting men perceivably enter the women's locker room and women perceivably enter the men's locker room and disrobe and change there uh, because of cultural pressures that are at work in the world on this topic. And so I went to speak to do my best to maintain position and posture. You can be the judge of it because little to my knowledge, it is now preserved for all eternity on the YouTube. <laughs> Who knew? 
note to self. That would have really made me nervous. So when I get up front, I talk about, and I, I believe there's, there are only two genders. I believe that based on my reading of scripture. And I believe there's pressure uh, to move off that. But when I had the opportunity to speak, I noted that it, I thought it would make the most sense compassionately, or based on compassion to offer single-use restrooms to any that wanted them and, go ahead and continue to maintain um, the sexual segregation based on the historic practice uh, that they have had for the last 30-some-odd years of asking patrons to use the gender assigned at birth in a particular locker room. I shared I thought it would be most compassionate to do so in that many people transitioning and struggling with gender dysphoria might become targets of unkind treatment. And we could protect this population and have a responsibility to protect everybody in our community. As Christians, and you may disagree with, with my position there, my my hope in offering my position is simply to drive home that we, as followers of Christ, we can't disagree that the goal's love. The charge for us is to figure out how to hold up Christ and show Christ. That's the charge. We're somewhat hard on each other. I'm, in fact, I'm sure I'll hear some emails, and that's okay. It'll grow me. It'll strengthen me but we're fairly hard on each other, fairly impatient with each other. And we should be kind and gentle with one another, even as we try to navigate what are some terribly tumultuous cultural waters. And so I called for compassion. I also called for courage from the commissioners, all of whom are volunteer, not a small charge. It's a hard, it's a hard road saying that we want to protect the vulnerable, including our children, however they may identify. I'll close with this, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The transgender and gender dysphoric community uh, among youth, high side estimates, and they're changing, but right now, my best understanding, high side estimates are about 5% of the population. That's 5% of the population that could use our love, our care, regardless of whether or not we agree with one another. When they, when they meet with us, they need the whiff of Jesus, right? Showing somebody love, showing somebody love doesn't mean we have to agree with them or they have to agree with us. We can maintain our position, gospel clarity, and still show love. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the teachings hang on these two commandments. I'll pray for us. Father, we ask for your goodness to us as a church.
Would you help us thread that very difficult needle of maintaining gospel clarity and demonstrating gospel love to a world that desperately needs it? For the glory of Jesus, I pray this, and for the good of his people. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close in song.